The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic Pet Duo. Greetings from the Pet Buzz Studio, sponsored by EpiPet. Each week, we discuss everything your pet wants, needs, and deserves. We welcome our listeners who tune in each week from around the world. Hey, Doc, you know, we have a new station to add to the Pet Buzz family. Fantastic. We're welcoming KUJAM Walla Walla, Washington. I don't know if you know this, but Walla Walla is one of the most beautiful towns in Washington State. And the city is very pet friendly. There are pet friendly hotels, restaurants, wineries, and more, including a very cool Walla Walla dog park. That's great. That's great. Glad they've joined us. Yeah, so am I. Why don't you tell us what's on the show this week? This week on the show, we are talking about International Assistance Dog Week, cats getting lost in air ducts, preventing feline hairballs, Dwayne the Rock Johnson getting dressed up like a dog. And we're also talking about the do's and don'ts of televet visits. You know, before COVID-19 changed everything, pet owners had very few options outside a traditional trip to the vet. But since the FDA lifted its requirements on in-person veterinary examinations for fear of spreading the virus during the pandemic, pet telemedicine has boomed. Joining us today is veterinarian Dr. Jose Arce, the president of the AVMA, that's the American Veterinary Medical Association. Today on the Pet Buzz, he's going to talk about the do's and don'ts of telemedicine. So, Dr. Arce, welcome back to the Pet Buzz. It's fantastic having you here with us. Thank you for having me. And today, this week we're celebrating the AVMA convention, so what a way to start it. I know. That's fantastic. What a great convention. I was at one, and I think in San Diego a few years back, it was one of my favorites. That's one of the best, always. Yep. Yeah. Um, so why is, so as I said, we're talking about telemedicine today. So why is telemedicine attractive to pet owners? Well, telemedicine has become an important way to, to assess and monitor the needs of patients. And at the same time, we're protecting the, the health of veterinary teams and clients. So during the pandemic, we saw this boom in, in the use of telemedicine because, you know, people could stay at home, they didn't have to expose themselves, and they could still get, you know, be seen by the veterinarians and, and, and see what, what was happening. So we, we actually have some surveys say that the use of telemedicine went up from 10% to almost 35% of the clinics in the, around the U.S. So it's a great tool that clients love. Sure. Now, do you already need to have a veterinary client patient relationship or a VCPR before scheduling, I like to say, televet visit? I like that question. Yes, indeed. And it's very important. We don't want to uh, jeopardize the, the type of service you're getting. So we do have to have a VCPR. And that means just have, having been seen by your veterinarian during the, during the last year, make sure you have that relationship and that the veterinarian knows about your pet. It's, it's hard to, to never have seen a pet and all of a sudden see it on a screen. I mean, you've never seen it. You, you don't know what's going on. So once you know that pet and you have that relationship, then it's much, it makes much more sense. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking about Televet Medicine with the president of the AVMA, one of my favorites, Dr. Jose Arce. So um, Dr. Arce, where's the best place to find a Televet? Yeah, that, and that is a good question. You, I guess you would have to find you know, a, a new relationship with another veterinarian. And you can have two. Uh, you can have your regular veterinarian that you visit in person, and then you could have another uh, 
veterinarian that that does tele telehealth uh, and then you can have that relationship for emergency situations for for doubts that you that you might have that can be answered this way with, without you having to go to a hospital and, and we know you know what the waiting list waiting times are right now because of the pandemic we're still in a backlog and we're catching up and you know this is a great tool but you would have to find a veterinarian that also already has that service Sure. Now, do you think state licensure is an important? Should I necessarily find someone in my state? Should there be a problem? Yeah, you should. And, you know, most uh, state laws require that, that you know, whoever's seen a pet in, in, in your state where you live has a, a license from that state. Uh, there are states that have, you know, uh, a relationship with neighboring states and, and a veterinarian can have a, a license from different states. Uh, but it's usually only for emergency situations that they allow us to practice in a state that is not the one where, where we have a license. So I'm thinking as an example, what you're talking about, the last uh, thing that you brought up would be something like animal poison control. When you call because there's a situation and they're based, I believe, in Illinois, the ASPC animal poison control hotline. So you might get a veterinarian who's not licensed to practice in Florida. So that's exactly what you're talking about in this emergency type of situation, correct? Correct. And those type of services, which they're great, ASPCA, you know, uh, poison line is excellent. They will give you some recommendations. They, they will not give you any specific medical guidance but they will work with your veterinarian and talk to them. Okay, my dog got exposed to such and such plant, which I don't know because it's not a plant that, that is normally on, on my neck of the woods, but it can cause this type of symptoms. And, you know, the, the service will communicate and with your veterinarian tell them, hey, this is what you need to do. This is, you know, the antidote or something that you can use to help offset some of the uh, symptoms of that uh, poisoning. I mean, I think if you have a pet in critical health condition, maybe he has cancer, he's deteriorating instead of going in, you know, you could tell the veterinarian his weight. Um, but I think you still have to go in if you have a really sick pet. But for like a weekly checkup type thing, I think yeah. that might that might work. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Rechecks so are excellent. Yeah. We've talked a lot about do's. Let's talk about don'ts. So what does Televet services not include? What about well, prescriptions? That's where I was going. Definitely. Uh, this is something we still have to voice at our veterinarian, but we might start with a, with a telehealth or telemedicine visit. And then, you know, I see something, I see the skin and I say, okay, you know, your dog needs uh, this shampoo. Use it twice a, a week for three or four weeks. You need uh, certain antibiotics or, or some allergy uh, antihistamine because we think it's an allergic condition to the skin. But I, I can, we can see that, but then you're still gonna have to go by the hospital and pick up the medication. But if we have established that VCPR that you spoke about before and, I, and we do the telehealth visit, yeah, we can do that, but you will still have to go in person to pick up the medication. Sure. Now, lastly, are televet visit services cost-effective? They are, uh, and you know, they usually is the same as a visit. Uh, to a veterinarian, but for certain uh, things like rechecks, you know, I, I think you know we we stay home, we don't have to get into the car, spend time on gas. We we can we can do our Zoom uh, visits and you know have shorts and and and, and be at home. Uh, and in the future, this this is this is all going to change. It's, I mean, we, this is just the the beginning of, of what's happening. We, we we're going to go into what what's being called connected care, where we're going to include you know. All kinds of digital devices where we will be able to to actively monitor uh, 
your pets, uh, you know, vital signs, glucose monitorings. Right now with diabetics, it's already a thing. Uh, they have certain colors that, that we, but, you know, art, artificial intelligence is just beginning to, to grow in, in veterinary sure. medicine. And we're going to see this in the future. And, and I see telehealth and medicine uh, visits uh, just continue to increase in the future. So, um, Dr. Arce, how can a pet owner be best prepared for a telemedicine visit with their veterinarian? I mean, what can they do? Uh, some basic things as having a good internet connection, uh, because you, we want to accurately, you know, help diagnose and, and see your animal uh, correctly. The other thing is, you know, if you have an appointment set up and all of a sudden you don't have internet, you will lose that, that time that you have separated exclusively for you. Uh, so that, that, that's some of the basic things that I would think, uh, you know, if you have technical difficulties, you know, ask your kids, they, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, how to fix the resolution. So you have better <laughs> images, th things like that. Well, what about having your pets with you? Should I have my pet in front of the screen or should I be, if I'm worried about a, a rash or something, should I have photos or should I send my records to that veterinarian in advance? What do you think? All of those are great uh, examples of things you can do ahead of that appointment. Definitely, if, you've, if you're doing uh, a consult and, and your dog has a rash or something, if you can get those to us ahead of the, the uh, appointment, it's even better. So we can look at them and, and see what different things we, we think about, what questions to ask you when we are in person. Uh, the same thing, you know, have, have the pet in the room. Uh, the veterinarian will ask you at some point during the appointment, you know, to, to, to point the camera, point, uh, take pictures, depending on, on, on what the, the complaint is and, and what we're, we're reviewing. Certain areas, you know, we, we might ask, bring, have another family member with you. Sometimes we might ask you to open the mouth. So somebody has to be holding the camera while another uh, family member or friend can be, you know, opening their mouth. So yeah, sometimes it, it might be, depending on, on, you know, on what we're looking at, we, it might be helpful to have a second person in there too. So, I mean, what should a pet owner expect from a televet visit? And are there some pet medical conditions that are better suited to this type of service than others? Yes, definitely. There are certain, you know, things that, that uh, you know, post-op uh, rechecks. You know, you, your pet went in for a spay and neuter. And, you know, instead of having to go to the clinic to, for me to look at the incision, uh, you know, we can just meet by telemedicine. You, you, you show me that incision in front of the camera and I can quickly say, oh, the incision looks beautiful. We don't have to do anything else. Uh, skin conditions, uh, some of the respiratory signs, you know, some, some people you know, are not sure whether you, their dog is, it's, it's, is coughing or sneezing, things like that we can easily see. Uh, other things, you know, internal things, that's gonna be hard, you know. Uh, for that, there's no substitution as an in-house uh, visit when we have to palpate the abdomen and, and feel what the liver, what the spleen sure. feels like, you know, that cannot be substituted with telehealth. Well, Dr. Arce, thank you so much for visiting with us. We love having you on this show. You're always so informative and lively. I love that about you. Can you provide us with a website where we can learn more? Yes, you're going to go to avma.org slash telehealth to listen about uh, about different, we have webinars, we have different things about telehealth. If you want other type of information about your pet, just go to avma.org. Great. Well, everyone, that was Dr. Jose Arce, the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, providing us with the do's and the don'ts of telemedicine. Stay tuned. Up next is Celebrity Pet Buzz and, of course, Flex Facts.
You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We love to communicate with you via social media. Use The Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and our buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Buzz. This show is hosted by the Dynamic Pet Duo. I'm veterinarian, Dr. Michael Fleck. And I'm pet trendologist, Charlotte Reed. And now it's time for celebrity pet news. Dog lover Dwayne The Rock Johnson surprised two screening audiences for his new animated film, DC League of Super Pets. In the film, Johnson voices Crypto, Superman's canine companion who shares his famous owner's superpowers. Well, at one of the screenings, Johnson revealed himself to present the Hernandez family with a new puppy named Quail from Best Friends Animal Society. After working with Best Friends, Mrs. Hernandez found the perfect puppy for her children who had wanted a dog for years. Best Friends and Warner Brothers Pictures worked together to surprise the Hernandez children with their new dog at the DC League of Super Pet screening to make the moment even more special. So good luck, Hernandez family, with your new puppy, and I hope you like the movie. DC League of Super Pets premiered July 29th in U.S. theaters and is rated PG. It is released by Warner Brothers, a unit of Warner Brothers Discovery. Up now, Flex Facts. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fact or fiction? Just the Facts, ma'am. You want answers! I want the truth! So, Doc, what's the topic for the day? Today, we are talking about cats, hairballs, or furballs specifically. You know, cats clean themselves frequently. Their rough tongues remove dirt, debris, and loose fur, which they then swallow. Typically, the hair passes through the stomach and digestive system without a problem. If a large amount gets stuck, your cat can throw it up, producing a hairball. Okay, so a lot of cat owners complain about hairballs. So can you talk a little uh, with me about how a cat owner can minimize hairball occurrence? Brush their fur. Cats are excellent self-groomers, but if your cat sheds a lot, they may swallow loose fur, which increases the likelihood of hairballs. Cat owners can help decrease the risk with a good brushing of their cats once or twice a week at least. If your cat doesn't like the brush, use a grooming glove as your cat may feel like she or he is receiving a good petting. Afterward, use a pet wipe to remove any loose remaining fur, which will, in turn, prevent the cat from swallowing more hair. Yeah, that's a really good tip yeah. because a lot of times when you're group, you're brushing your cat, there's still leftover um, hair on, but it's important to use a pet wipe. So I'm glad that you mentioned a pet wipe, not a human wipe, not a baby wipe, pet a wipe. pet wipe. Yes. That's, that's really good because those are pH balanced. They're designed for the cat's skin okay. and coat. So what else can cat owners do to reduce help reduce hairballs well just like human cats need fiber to maintain a healthy digestive tract oh interesting sure you can add extra fiber to lower the risk of hairballs examples of fiber for cats could be a tiny mound of cat pumpkin or cat grass also increase a cat's water wait did you say cat 
pumpkin or canned pumpkin? Canned pumpkin. Oh, okay. I thought there I was like, Not wow. a big pumpkin. No, yeah. no, no. Okay. Canned, canned. Okay. Yes. Thank you for correcting that. Also, in case, increase the cat's water intake if possible. And if your cat eats dry food, perhaps their diet isn't providing enough water to meet their hydration needs. As such, their digestive system may not function as it should. So to increase water intake, change water frequently, as well as add a tablespoon of maybe tuna water to their bowl. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. And you gotta change that water so it's fresh. Yes. Yeah. Also consider a fountain, since many cats prefer fresh morning water. And they're not really that expensive. They're getting cheaper, those fountains. Yeah, they think it's fun. Yeah, and they might even play in the water, so you might want to put a towel under that fountain. Okay, so what else can a cat owner do? Lubricate the digestive tract. Add a teaspoon of olive oil or a small amount of canned tuna or sardines to your pet's diet. Yeah, because those fish have lots of oil, lots right? Lots of oil. Okay. A good greaser. So talk to your vet about petroleum-based remedies that are available that you can periodically feed your cats. What kind of, what would you recommend in your practice? I even use mineral oil. Oh, okay. Somebody suggested petroleum, Vaseline on a paw. Yeah. You could do that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and what about that? What about the laxitone? Is that laxitone? Is that what you That's what we use, which is like a Vaseline, only tastes better. Okay, so you can get something for your vet. Okay. So try hairball food formulated for hairballs. Many cat food brands have a product to deal with hairballs. These formulas include things such as increased fiber oil, minerals, and vitamins that can help the swallowed hair pass through the digestive system naturally. And lastly, while you might need to worry about the occasional hairballs, there are instances in which you should see a vet. It's rare, but hairballs can grow so large that your cat can't pass them or the hairballs get lodged in the throat or the digestive tract, creating a blockage. I've never seen it. If the hairball is too large, surgery may be required to remove it. Signs include vomiting, but nothing coming out. Coughing hard with an abdominal breathing cough. You mean, uh, oh, like, okay, coughing, and yeah. then maybe the pet has a hard abdomen. Yeah. What about out. eating? Will he stop eating? Yeah, maybe he won't eat. And just general coughing and having trouble defecating, which could include diarrhea and lethargy. Wow. You know, Hallie's cat doesn't meow because he's got hairball problems. Never heard that one. Yeah. Crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. Anything else, Dr. Fleck? That's all the Flex Facts for the week. Great segment. Liked it. Now I'm thinking about like the hairball food and all this other yeah. stuff you need to have. Yeah. And you could... I guess probably the best hairball remedies are at the vet's offices, wouldn't you think? Yeah, yeah. Probably. Yeah, they're at the, at the vet's offices, and this is a place where the pet shops usually carry good products, too. Okay, well, that's good to know. Well, up next, I bet you can't wait for my I Likey of the Week. That's the way it has to be, because that's the way I like it. It's genius. It's to die for. You know, training matters for all dogs, especially for puppies. To make training fun and enjoyable, motivate your pooch with Hunter's Healthy Treats. Hunter's Treats contain no corn, wheat, soy, preservatives, added flavors, 
or even food coloring. Dogs love them because they're soft baked with healthy ingredients like pumpkin, peanut butter, and sweet potato. Train your dog to give him the best life with the best motivation, Hunter's Healthy Treats. For more information, visit huntershealthytreats.com. That's H-U-N-T-E-R-S healthytreats.com. This week's spotlight features Grace Forster. Grace lives in New York City. She was a member of the original cast of Dog Moms of New York, um, sitting with her two Yorkshire Terriers, Portia and Rosie. She is known for her fashion sense for both herself and her dogs. She recently lost her dog, Portia. And I know that so many of you can relate no matter what your lifestyle is, and including myself, because I've recently, uh, as many of you know, lost dogs. Grace, thank you so much for joining us on the Pet Bus today. Oh, th- thank you, Charlotte, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity and for thinking of me. Thank you so much. You know, when I heard your dog, Portia, died, I immediately took to Facebook to write you. You and the girls were such known figures on the New York uh, dog scene in Manhattan and really the surrounding tri-state area. Um, Everybody knew how much you loved your dogs and I'm sure so many people wrote to you. Uh, Thank you, yes. uh, It took me about a week um, to be able to write and post photos uh, on social media. And um, the response was just hundreds of people writing to me, people that I, I know in real life and then people that I know virtually through social media. And it was uh, it was very touching. And of course, uh, you were so kind and supportive um, to write to me personally. And, and I really appreciated that. So people did take take the time. It was very difficult for me because I'm a private person. I don't share um, my personal feelings. But, you know, I, I had to share this. I felt it was important. And I know some people don't even share. Some people overshare and some people share it all. But I felt this was something that I really needed to put out there um, um, when I was ready. As I said, it took took about a week. No, I'm sure. But, you know, really, you you are so inspirational because for many of us who admire you, we know how much you love your dogs. So it's so obvious when people see you at dog parades or costume contests or just charity events. Um, there's just something about you. You stand out. And one of the reasons that you do is because it's obvious how much um, you loved uh, Portia. Um, oh, tell us, thank you. You're welcome. I mean, tell us, tell us about Portia. You know, um, what was she like? Well, I I got Portia when she was six months old, and I found that pretty pretty soon after I got her, she was very comfortable uh, wearing clothes and and uh, and being very. She was very attentive to me, so she became a very good model, and because um, she took direction from me, so she was a bit of a diva. Um, she had. She wasn't the friendliest. Sometimes she would uh, uh, like people and sometimes not. So she would not, not necessarily be Miss Congeniality. But um, she, was, uh, she was actually a very beautiful dog. She was on the cover of Yorkshire Terrier magazine, which I was very surprised they, that she actually made the cover of, a, of, of, this, of this magazine. Um, and she had you know, many, many other 
modeling gigs, but that was really something very special. But um, she was a wonderful companion. Uh, uh, of course, she slowed down um, as the years went on. Um, and I had to curtail some of the activities and, and travel with her, which people did comment. They realized that I always put the health of my dogs before the activity. Um, and that, I think, is, is, is important because you know, she was sick for quite a while. So I really had to, uh, I had to cater to her needs and not what was convenient for me. I think that's, that's really important. And that's why you're a fantastic dog mom. Um, <laughs> how old was she when she passed? Was she ill for a while? Um, yes, she, she was 17 when she passed. I had just uh, had a birthday party for her. Her birthday was April 1st, and she passed in May. Um, I wasn't sure the party was going to happen because um, she was in renal failure for quite a while, and I was giving her sub-Q fluids. Uh, I, I'm not in the medical profession, but I learned how to do it. And I was giving her B12 shots and, and we spent a lot of time at the vet's office, but then a mass was discovered and she, um, uh, she was not in, in a medical p a position to have surgery. So um, I was having that monitored and she was just losing a lot of weight and that, <clears throat> that became very difficult um, to, you know to see her decline was very difficult. I'm sure it was. I mean, um, you know, I, like, I didn't, you know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned she was not necessarily Miss Congeniality. And I, and I, and I, I recognize that about her. Um, so I would say I was one of the admirers from afar. Let's just say that. Um, <laughs> she had, you know, a few people that she would, you know, jump for joy and other people, she just was like, uh, oh. So I admired Portia from afar, but when I think of Portia, I think of you and Portia and Rosie together and just how attuned you were with your dog. I mean, you know, some for some people who participate in a lot of modeling gigs and dog events, um, you know, it's all about them. But for you, like you said, it was about you and the dogs enjoying yourself, having a good time uh, and also giving back um, to various charities and and um and dogs in need homeless dogs and i and i know that you've you know supported many dogs uh dog of uh dog organizations including bideway in new york i i'm just right. curious how did you send her over rainbow bridge i'm sure with style yes oh um yes as as much as as i could i um you know there's that wonderful pet cemetery Hartsdale cemetery uh it's a beautiful place and i had a private um funeral let's say um with rosie there and a friend of mine who traveled uh, a few hundred miles to, to, to meet me and i had her put in a in her wedding dress that she wore for we tv and and a veil and um rosary beads and my friend brought, brought flowers and i brought flowers and um some of the the photos were really very poignant and uh, of of her and even rosie by her side she she looked so calm and peaceful sleeping, you know? Um, and that was important to me. Not, not everyone finds that important and I respect that. But for me, that's always the way that I've had over the years, my pets with, with a private uh, service. Um, Hartsdale has certainly improved their, their situation uh, for private funerals over the years. Because um, I've gone there since, since I guess 1990 or so. Um, when I lost my first pet, but uh, um, it was that was important to me, and um, 
you know, it's, 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 it's part of the closure, not, not entirely, but it, it did make me feel that, that, um, that she was being sent off in style, as, as you said. How are you and, uh, and Rosie doing now? Rosie's your other Yorkshire Terrier who's a few years younger. How are you guys doing? Has it been difficult? Um, well, with grieving, you know, you have good days, you have bad days, something will set you off. But, uh, you know, I'm trying my best to just carry on as normal um, and to think about Rosie and her health. She's going to be 16 in a couple of days and I'm having a party for her, which I just didn't realize would be as difficult as it is to organize because I keep thinking of Portia. And of course, Portia wasn't well, it was there for her last birthday and so forth. Um, but I'm I'm just trying to love her and and do everything that I can for her and just cherish every day. Um, and I think that's what we should do with all of our pets is to just uh, appreciate every every day we have with them and and um, try to be as positive as we as we as we can. Certainly in public, I try to be as um, positive as I can. And you know, uh, I do my. You know, it's interesting because I would think because you're such a known figure in the New York dog world and people have seen you and, you know, the in the papers and uh, and on television. I'm sure people, you know, always say, hey, where's the other dog or, you know, you only have one dog now. I'm sure people are, are asking you on a regular basis, right? Yes, yes. Some, some people, they ask, but then they don't uh, say anything more because I think some people have problems with death and then other people that you don't expect are um, very supportive and uh, very kind. And uh, we've gone to uh, several charity events that I would normally have taken Portia and I took Rosie and the people that know me, I explained that this is Rosie and other people I just didn't, didn't bother it if they said, oh, yes, I remember her from last time. I just, you know, went along with it rather than rather than even if something I didn't want something to trigger me to <laughs> to get emotional at a at a at a charity event, you know, to try to keep it as positive as, as I could. You know, as I said, I'd rather grieve in, in private and and um, try to keep a happy face, um, especially if, you know, you're at a, 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 an event, you're supposed to be having a good time. Um, in addition to to benefiting, you know, the, supporting the the um, the rescue organization, and you have the birthday party coming up, so it's really a combination of surrounding yourself with positive people who understand how you are handling the grief, and in your case, uh, very privately. And uh, I I understand that. I understand that. Um, not everyone will understand that you will be grieving for your dog. So you have to cut out the chatter and celebrate your dog's life and the good times that you had. I mean, these dogs are family members, they're measuring lines, they represent so much in our life. Um, and I always like to say, I wanna celebrate, I'll miss them, but I celebrate Ty and Thames and Hannah's life uh, as well as all of my other dogs, just like you're doing right now, Grace. Grace, I want to thank you so thank much you. for joining me today. And I, I am really sorry for your loss. And although I don't live oh, in New York oh, anymore, you were 
definitely one of the best, most fashionable, and most lively dog moms that I know, who very easily, it came natural, showed your love for your dog. So God bless you. And I know that oh, you and Portia you. will meet again over Rainbow Bridge. Thank you. I appreciate your having me on your show. And thank you. This has been, this has been a, a catharsis for me too, you know, to just to talk about it with you and, and someone who uh, is so like-minded and, and, and understands um, how, how important, but, and you said something very important about celebrating the, their life, which I'm, I'm trying my best to do um, and think of it that way. And all the, the wonderful times we had together. So thank you. Thank you so much, Charlotte. It means a lot. Great. Up next, Global Pet News. And of course, tell me something good. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio, where we focus on enhancing the bond between pets and their people. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Now it's time for the mailbag. <laughs> You've got mail. Well, Candace writes from Michigan that soon after her family moved into their new home, they put their two indoor cats in a room with their feline things, intending to keep the cats safe, safely sequestered until after the furnishings were moved in on the following day. Later in the day, when she went to check on the cat, she found they had removed the grill from the floor vent and disappeared into the air ducts. It took almost a day to rescue them. As a result, she and her husband added weight as a result, she and her husband added weighted items to the edge of all the air ducts so the cats could not move them. Unfortunately, the couple missed one and one of the cats went missing again into the vents. She asked for any suggestions to keep the cat safe. While Candace, cats almost instinctively like to hide when moving into unfamiliar territory. Whether you've just adopted a new cat or if you and your pet have moved into a new home, it's always likely that your kitty will tuck herself away in a safe spot and gradually expand her territory. Cats need safe places to hide. Your cats were probably disconcerted by the move, the new home, the strange voice of moving men, um, as well as just the general atmosphere, the general noise of moving in. Being confined in a strange room might have triggered their need to escape. I suspect they'll stop their air duct exploration once they feel more settled. But keeping them into a routine, consistent, will definitely help. So same meal time, same bedding, and the play times that you interact with them, as well as giving them a chance to put their sense into the house. Additionally, although it's an expense, I suggest you call a Better Business Bureau recommended heating and cooling team to assess any damage to the air ducts by your cats. Lastly, due to the hot weather, mice, birds, and other animals who are escaping the heat very commonly this time of the year, could have settled in your air ducts and their odor and sounds could have tempted your cats to climb in. Or there could be the possibility that rodents, birds, animals, and other animals could be dead, still tempting your cats to explore the ducts. Well, like I said, it's an upfront expense for you. You will know if the cats or other animals caused any damage such as air leaks that will lead to a drop in energy efficiency and comfort in your home. Well, that's the mailbag. Man's best friend are called so because of their loyalty and dedication toward their owners. Service dogs take that dedication even further, helping people with disabilities navigate their everyday lives. 
International Assistance Dog Week, celebrated from August 7th to August 13th this year, it's coming up, is meant to honor service dogs and their trainers. Together, they have improved countless lives across the globe. There you are. Well, hi. Joining us today to talk about how service dogs are helping people with disabilities is Chris Diefenthaler, the Executive Director of Assistant Dogs International. Chris, hello and welcome to the Pet Buzz. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the invitation to share uh, information about assistance dogs in general, as well as Assistance Dogs International. So thank you very much, both of you. Well, why don't you talk about your organization for us a little bit? Sure. Um, assistance Dogs International, we, a, we are an association of nonprofit assistance dogs organizations that are training and placing assistance dogs worldwide. So we are an international global organization. Part of what we do is we provide educational opportunities for our member organizations. We develop standards and an accreditation process for the industry, as well as helping to educate the general public on um, assistance dogs and the importance um, for those individuals that use assistance dogs out in the community. I'm going to ask a Dr. Fleck question. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? This would yep. normally come from Dr. Fleck, but I'm going to ask it. It's so how are you funded? Right. That's a Dr. Fleck question, right? Okay. Absolutely. Sure. Um, we are funded primarily by our members, meaning they do pay membership dues to be part of Assistance Dogs International. We do receive some funding from grants from foundations that understand and want to support our mission. So here's the big question. What's an assistance dog? Because there's so many terms for these dogs out here. So that's why yes. we came to you to ask you. Well, good. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, assistance dogs is really the broad terminology for dogs that are trained to perform tasks to mitigate an individual's disability. So um, the assistance dog term is the broad term, whereas um, under that would be your guide dogs for your visually impaired or blind individuals, hearing dogs for individuals who are deaf or hard of hearing, and then service dogs, which is really the broadest category because they are dogs trained for all various disabilities other than visual or um, hearing impaired. Can, can you review the comprehensive education around training and utilization of an assistance dog? Um, yeah, our member organizations actually do the training of the dog and the individuals that are receiving the dogs. ADI has standards that they must abide by to um, meet those um, standards for the actual training. Usually dogs go through anywhere from a one to two year training program, depending on the age that they enter a, a member organization's training program. And then the clients usually come in at various times uh, throughout the training program to be matched and then to receive training with their dog, as well as the follow-up. The follow-up is very important because once the dog is placed with an individual, we want to make sure that that dog is um, uh, performing what that client needs, as well as making sure that client is supported in uh, the training and the utilization of that service dog or assistance dog. Well, if you just joined us, Doc and I are learning more about assistance dogs with Chris 
Diefenthaler, the executive director of Assistance Dog International. As an observer to life, and as also somebody who has a service dog, I think people don't really understand what we need to know about aspects of public access with assistance, with an assistance dog. Because I've seen people who have assistance dogs or service dogs, you know, turned away from stores. Yeah, it's it's um, certainly a challenge, especially for individuals with what we would say invisible disabilities, such as what you mentioned, um, the diabetic um, alert um, dogs. The individual doesn't necessarily look like they have a disability, so individuals may make some assumptions that that dog is not truly a service dog or an assistance dog. So, um, but for the public to understand that it isn't their place to judge whether that dog is a true assistance dog or not. Um, but what they can do is have the expectation that that dog is going to be well-behaved and acting appropriately out in public. And then if that is the case, then it really doesn't matter if that dog is truly a service dog, because you can't tell a fake service dog from a truly placed service dog um, unless you are looking at the dog actually performing the tasks that that dog has been trained to do. So if someone is looking for an assistance dog, why should they look at an assistant dog from ADI, a created member program? Yeah, um, and that is pretty much what Charlotte was talking about, and that is those standards and accreditation process. All members of ADI have completed a very thorough um, exam and assessment of all of their operations to ensure that they are meeting all of our standards. And a summary of our standards is available on the website, um, on our website. And um, so by somebody going to one of our members, they have the comfort in knowing that, the, that our members are operating very ethically and have a very high standard for training and support for that client and that dog for the life of the dog. And that is very important um, that that support and guidance is there for the life. Trying to think of our listeners that where would they go, so to speak? And we're, we're trying to identify that as an ADI accredited member, but are they going to be confused? Are there a lot of other ones out there? There are a lot of mm -hmm. um, people and individuals out there that claim they can train an assistance dog. I get you. Um, assistance Dogs International, um, our membership are only nonprofit organizations. Um, and it does take quite a while for even our members to become accredited. We have a candidacy program that can take anywhere from two to five years before they can complete the accreditation process. So it's a very thorough, very comprehensive process. And that's why it's such a high standard to meet and why our members are so proud of the fact that they can say they are meeting ADI standards. Well, we're going to take a commercial break. Chris will be back to answer more questions in our next segment. Stick around. More to come with Chris as well as Global Pet News. Tell me something good. And don't forget, there's a sneak peek of what's happening next week on the Pet Buzz. You are listening to the Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. 
For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck here at the Pet Buzz. We are urban, suburban, and, and country. Chris Diefenthaler has decided to stick around and answer more of our questions. Chris, I have a question. Let's talk about the American Disabilities Act and how it pertains to assistance dogs. I think people know it exists, but they don't know very much about it. Um, What would you like people to know about the abuse of the system? Um, Well, the American with Disabilities Act and the reference to they term service animals is very broad based. And it pretty much the... um, the rule and or the law states that anybody with a disability has the privilege to take an assistance dog out into public venues wherever the public is allowed to go with their assistance dog. And that is really the extent of what the American with Disabilities Act covers. There is no registration, no licensing required and so that does, while it's very um, open-ended and very um, broad-based, that also then leads to issues where individuals could abuse the system by taking their pet dog or poorly trained assistance dog out in public, and then that public causing um, that behavior of that um, dog causing a problem in the public with meeting and um, interacting with the general public, and in some cases has caused some serious problems with coming up with a truly trained assistance dog and having a very negative interaction, potentially aggressive, that the uh, trained assistance dog is then um, harmed and cannot go out in public anymore because of the effects. Well, here's something that'll probably surprise our listeners. We're seeing more miniature horses as service animals. You want to talk about that? Well, Assistance Dogs International really doesn't have any governing um, standards or none of our members are training um, assistance horses or miniature horses. So I really don't have much information about use or the growing if there is a growing trend to using miniature horses i just thought i'd throw that in there because i think we're seeing um and it's become an issue uh especially on airplanes you know i mean because you have to have you know if you're traveling and we're seeing a lot of people per your last question who are abusing the system with their dogs traveling on you know flights but, you know, we've heard the stories in the last few years about horses, the peacock, the peacock <laughs> um, cats. And, you know, one of the biggest complaint is pets defecating. I mean, I have kept my mouth shut. I know it's hard for you to believe, Dr. Fleck, but I have been on trains, planes and uh, other vehicles of transportation. And I travel with my dog. I had I've had a big dog, a golden retriever. Then I've had a smaller English toy spaniel. I've had dogs that have been trained really well. And then I've ended up having a dog that ended up being a tr- dud service dog. He wouldn't did he maybe was accurate sixty percent of the time. Um, but I've seen people, you know, um, get on planes, and everyone can pet their dog. I mean, 
I don't let anybody pet my dog. I actually, because I have a smaller dog, a lot of times I walk up to the flight attendant and I say, hi, I introduce myself as a person on the flight with a service dog. And I said, you know, at an airport, I don't want to really interact with anybody, especially during COVID. So I say, I keep my dog in a bag and, you know, I will let, you know, he sits at my, by my feet on the plane. Uh, and I never take him out of the bag until I'm literally sitting because I don't want to talk about the dog. Or people will say, oh, I never knew you had a dog. You know what I mean? And it was getting harder to travel with my 80 or 90 pound golden retriever because she would just take up the whole aisle and there was really no room for anybody else. Pretty, it's just, pretty hard to take your, your miniature horse out of a pet bag. It is. So, I mean, I just threw, I mean, I, I didn't know if you were seeing, I guess, are you seeing more other assistance animals? Um, no, um, a lot of the airlines actually have prohibited um, other animals other than um, service dogs or assistance dogs. So um, the use of other animals is really a not moot point as far as we're aware. Yeah, it's moot. Okay, tell us why it's so important and how we can honor service dogs and their trainers. Give us a few ideas. Sure. Um, well, we are uh, certainly um, doing our own campaign around the International Assistance Dogs Week, and that is pretty much what ADI helps to do is to bring more awareness to um, assistance dogs, as well as the people that are really behind what we say on the other end of the leash. And that is the many volunteers that are a part of our member organizations. Our member organizations really could not raise and train all of these dogs without the valuable resources of volunteers that really help in the actual raising in some cases, as well as the training um, of these dogs. So um, as well as then the trainers that are employed by our member organizations and the professional skills that they have that are then training that dog to perform the hundreds of commands and tasks that these dogs can perform for someone to make their life a little easier and um, give them some independence that they wouldn't have without uh, an assistance dog. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today to bring that information to our listening audience. Can you be so kind as to share your organization's website so oh, they can absolutely. learn more? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, thank you also. And our website is assistancedogsinternational.org, O-R-G. Well, just to remind you, that was Chris Diffenthaler, the executive director of Assistance Dogs International, who was here helping us learn about assistance dogs and various trends and, and ideas that are percolating in the assistance dog community. To celebrate International Assistance Dog Week, it's just to remind you guys, it's August 7th to August 13th this year. Uh, we want to honor service dogs and their trainers with donations to Assistance Dog International or one of their member organizations. Now it's time for Global Pet News. And now, Pet Buzz News from around the globe. The Institute of Nature Conservation in Poland has declared war on a furry animal, Felis catus, or the domestic cat. The Associated Press reported 
last week that the venerable establishment, a branch of the Polish Academy of Sciences, moved to classify domestic cats as an invasive alien species. Their addition to a list of 1,786 other animals considered foreign to the nation caused an immediate backlash among cat lovers in Poland. In response, the Institute published a blog addressing the controversy, seeking to clarify that the organization was not calling for a destruction of the beloved household pet. Instead, the Institute argued the domestic cat is alien from a purely scientific perspective, having emerged from the Middle East roughly 10 thousand years ago. In addition to being non-native to Europe, cats are considered by many experts to have a highly destructive impact on local biodiversity. In a televised debate with the Institute's biologist, a local veterinarian pushed back on the criteria for the classification, asking that biologist to consider if man is on the list of non-native alien species too. Now let's end our show with Tell Me Something Good. News of the day got you down? No worries. Pet trendologist Charlotte Reed is here with Tell Me Something Good. This is a necessity like air and oxygen. Tell me something Thanks to the Daily Paws, I was introduced to golden retriever Taco and his baby human sister, Venora. This trendy duo is stealing hearts on TikTok. In a recent video, as the Mission Impossible theme song plays in the background, Protective Taco is seen literally watching and wagging over his baby sister as she carefully climbs the stairs, heading up to a playground slide. Once little Venora ascends the final step, Taco turns around at the bottom of the slide to watch his baby come weeing down. Taco's attitude more or less is, I got you. <coughs> as he patiently and attentively waits to be reunited with his baby sister, Bestie. We know that many children are mauled by dogs each week, but here we wanted to focus on the positive interaction between kids and dogs. Now that's something good. You know, it's always too soon to wrap the show, but before we go, we want to give you a preview of next week's show. Next week, we're talking about mosquito-borne diseases and feline vaccinations. And I also want to thank our guests. Special thanks to Dr. Jose Arce and Chris Diffenthaler. And of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. Now, if you have a question, write to us at teamatthepetbuzz.com. We'll cover it on next week's show. And if you've missed any portion of the show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channels and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning. Most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. www.thepetbuzz.com Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.